Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Empathy Podcast. I'm Holly Custard. And I'm Nelson Almanzar. Here at the Empathy Podcast, we bring on guests from all walks of life, and we talk about things like compassion, listening, and understanding, and how all these things have an impact on our lives. That's right. And we get to share stories with our guests to talk about how empathy plays a positive role in our day-to-day. And we're happy to report that it happens a lot more frequently than we might think. Yes. So before we begin this episode, we want to invite you to connect with us on our website, www.empathypodcast.com, and find us on Facebook and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Great. So thanks for listening. Now let's tune in to this episode of the Empathy Podcast. Today, Nelson and I are talking with Drs. Jason Lambert and Joy Leopold. Jason is a business professor and academic researcher at Texas Women's University. His career has included professional management across private, public, and nonprofit sectors, and he teaches courses covering human resources, leadership, workforce diversity, and organizational behavior. His research examines attitudes, values, beliefs, and experiences of members from different identity groups and how those factors affect organizational functioning. Joy is an assistant professor in communications and journalism at Webster University and is a recent graduate from the University of Miami. Her research focuses on social movements, digital media, and collective action. She's interested in the production and use of news media to stimulate and foster change, as well as understanding representation of underrepresented groups. Together, they're collaborating in research that examines the perceptions or misperceptions of diversity and inclusion, highlighting the complexity of managing the heterogeneous workforce of the future. Jason and Joy, thank you so much for joining us. We're really excited to jump into the discussion and learn about how empathy aligns with the work you're doing. Thanks for joining, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. That was a great introduction. I am in the field of media and communications. My main focus is on journalism and sort of just the news media in general. And I really focus my research on trying to understand the different ways that people can use the news media to understand the world they live in, understand things that they can't experience firsthand personally, and then make informed decisions that actually allow them to be empowered and have a positive impact in their community and um, in the things that are important to them. I recently graduated, um, as Holly mentioned, from the University of Miami, and I worked on my dissertation there focusing on the role that media can play in civic participation. Sometimes people refer to it as civic engagement or political participation, but basically it is just sort of that combination of action and knowledge about your sort of community. And so that can be on a sort of higher level, understanding the political process, engaging in voting and holding, you know, your representatives or your senators accountable, but it can also be on a sort of more personal level. It can involve volunteering at in local organizations. It can involve just helping out your neighbor or signing a petition. And so my work focused on the way that information that's found in the news media can facilitate civic participation and a little bit more specifically digital media and information that's found in news, the way that we consume news a lot today, which is via our cell phones on social media. So sort of the information that's found and then the way that audiences use that information to 
learn about issues that are important to them to share it with their relevant others, whether it's, you know, via direct message or via email, however, you know, just sort of finding the information and then using it to best empower themselves to be civically active. So the way people receive and, and consume information, you guys help them distill it so that they can uh, help them in their cause, right? Yeah. And, and in the, on the civic side, empower them to, to take action. Uh, so understand what's going on and then here are also the tools to take action in your community. Right. More or less. So did you ever find a disconnect? You know, I'm thinking there must be a, a pretty big disconnect at times with representation versus reality. Like you said, like how is that navigated in terms of community engagement with that content? Is it used as a teaching moment for social engagement when there are misrepresentations? So the research was sort of in two parts. And so the first part, I basically did a sort of content analysis to try to figure out exactly how the information is presented. And I wanted to figure out how that information, the way that it's presented resonates with audiences. And then once they're actually consuming that content, are they interested in reading the comments of other people? Are they interested in sharing that content with other people who they know personally and things like that? And so what I found was that people are much less inclined um, than you would think to engage with people they don't know online. And so if they're interested in, in a particular issue, if they have found a news story that particularly interests them, they want to talk about it, but they only want to talk about it in a sort of safe space. So they will send it in a direct message to their friend, or they will tag their friend in it and then take that conversation sort of offline so that they can, you know, learn about it and they can share their opinions, but they don't, they're not subject to a lot of the negativity that's found online. Mm -hmm. So that was one of like the major findings that I, that I had from the study. And I think, you know, as it relates to things that are sort of, you know, maybe misrepresented, a lot of times people will find an article that they don't agree with, but again, they won't necessarily engage in that way. They will just talk about it, talk about how they feel, how it makes them feel with people who they're very close to. Yeah, I think a lot of people are not equipped or they don't feel that they're equipped to to have a discussion that they disagree with, right? Like if the status quo or the members of your tribe, whether it's your family, your school, your coworkers, you know, if they if you see that they're thinking a certain way and and your instinct tells you, well, I don't necessarily agree with this 100%, you know, most people will just sort of brush that aside and then kind of continue with, with the status quo rather than uh, right. let's have an open discussion about this. Yeah, I, I agree totally with you, Joy and Nelson stated. When we look at people, you know, we all have our own different attitudes, values, and beliefs, and it's very difficult for us to, to change those. My research really tries to look at how we can improve uh, the workforce in ways so that people can work together, can overcome this uh, dysfunctional conflict, if you will, and be able to focus more on functional conflict, the conflict, the surrounding, the tasks at hand, uh, so that the organizations can perform better. So, you know, I've been doing this for about, since 2008, I've been teaching courses and, and researching in this area. And what I've found is that exposure to people different from yourselves, increasing your education so that you're able to better critically think has a profound effect on 
the perspectives people have regarding things like race, religion, and other diversity characteristics. You know, doing workshops and also working with my students, it's a significant difference in the way they uh, feel or where they think about the world they live in after taking the course. Because quite honestly, as you all know, Things like race, religion, these are sensitive topics. Uh, People don't like to discuss them, don't like to share them. But the hard truth is that these uh, hidden biases that we have or that we usually don't know that we have have to be uncovered and discussed in order for real change to occur. And so so having those hard conversations, I found also, has helped people to be more empathic and able to work better with those who they wouldn't ordinarily see themselves working with or developing relationships with. So how does your work overlap? I'm really curious, you know, with, uh, you know, Joy coming out of communications and journalism and Jason, you from business, you know, where do your strengths and I guess differences kind of overlap in terms of facilitating that kind of insight for people? How do you take your talents and guide that process? First, I think us coming from two different disciplines. There's a lot of theory and a lot of um, research that, that overlaps that we're both familiar with. So that helps. So we're on the same page. But there are also many differences. So, for example, we're working on a paper now. It looks at the uh, Me Too movement. And uh, we're examining, uh, we're creating a framework that examines the impact of um, social media on that. And so... That's really in her wheelhouse, you know. She really understands that aspect of communication, social media, journalism, things like that, and how it impacts the uh, public at large, the you know, greater population. So I guess where I come in is, since we both understand diversity and inclusion, I add that element and complement hers. But then I look at it, like, specifically within organizations and business. And so we look at the Me Too movement how it impacts society as general, how social media impacts society as general, but also how does that trickle down into uh, employees in the organizations and how it impacts organizational policies and does that improve things like uh, or mitigate uh, the instances of sexual harassment at work and, and differential treatment and discrimination? Uh, because um, the reality is, you know, in, in the greater, greater society, when you go to work, it's hard to just, you know, leave your identity at home. As much as organizations uh, create policies in order to make sure that everyone is shared, has shared same values when they're inside that, that bubble of the organization, if you will, uh, sometimes very, you know, it can be difficult to, to manage that. And so I think we kind of look at her from the macro standpoint of diversity and inclusion, and, and I kind of look at it from a more of a micro standpoint perspective. I'd say secondly, you know, the fact that um, Joy is, is, is a woman that also has informed me a lot, especially working with her on this paper and, you know, last South by Southwest event. It really reminds me of, you know, things like male privilege. We're both racial minorities. We're both, you know, black African-American, but uh, being, being a, a, a male, there's still uh, those, those subtle uh, differences. Like, you know, I, like after South by Southwest, I told her, I said, you know what, the whole time I was worried that I wasn't like over talking you or talking too much because those are things that, that happen. You go to panels and, and you see that. And sometimes as, as, as men, and this kind of ties into empathy, we have to recognize the society we live in conditions us sometimes to behave in matters that we don't really, we're not aware of. And so 
like even now I'm like, okay, am I talking too much? <laughs> you mentioned identity as part of uh, the workplace, right? When we join a team at work, uh, we bring our own identity and, and many times we're taught to separate work from personal life. And right. what happens with that is that we kind of rob ourselves or the organization robs itself of the experiences that each individual brings and, and having that diversity of experiences, socioeconomic, whatever the case may be, racial, educational, those, those experiences that, that people bring can foster our opportunity for, for new ideas, for innovation, for a new way of, of approaching a problem. And many times, because we're taught to oh no, leave your whatever identity that's not relevant to the workforce, uh, leave that out of the, out of the office. And, and I think what, what you're doing uh, in, in teaching, delivering this message of, uh, and education of diversity and inclusion is, is opening those, those opportunities. What is the value of diversity in the workplace? And I know, you know, you have both explored the, the myths of diversity, or maybe it's like an organization has hopefully good intentions for implementing a diversity and inclusion initiative, but there's maybe a perception of why they're doing it, or maybe there's a lack of a plan or they're not measuring particular outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what is the value of diversity to an organization? Like what have you found in your research and what happens when it doesn't go well? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, first of all, when it doesn't go well, those reasons are kind of all of the above um, what you said, not fully understanding diversity and not understanding why it matters. Uh, not measuring it appropriately, uh, not seeking the the input from those who different diversity uh, work policies and initiatives are going to impact and affect. So, so we identified some myths about diversity, and and th- those myths really tie into these assumptions that managers make regarding workplace diversity, thinking that it's it's either not going to be helpful for the organization, which it, which it can be, or they think it's like a magical potion or, or some magic dust they can sprinkle on the organization and then everything's fine. So diversity takes real hard work, patience, and determination to get it done right. That being said, when it is done right, those benefits are the ability to attract the best talent because by not limiting who you select and hire for your organization, which can happen based on implicit biases that we have, you're able to cast a wider net and uh, attract more people for the reputation of your organization. You're able to recruit more people because uh, you're looking through a, a broader lens, if you will, and that improves your chances of hiring the best talent for your organization. Diversity also has been shown to improve uh, marketing efforts because there's uh, insight from your employees regarding your target market, information about their likes and dislikes and pre- customer preferences in work groups. There's, there's mixed results, mixed research that it creativity and innovation. Part of those mixed results, well, sometimes it, it, it positively impacts creativity and innovation. Uh, there's research that shows that it can negatively impact it. And there's research that shows that there's no effect at all. But when you browse through the research, you'll see that a lot of that has to deal with the, the structure of the environment and the leadership style that's there. So it can actually lead to promotion 
it can promote creativity and innovation if you have the right um, environment. How do you get there? <laughs> what is that ideal environment? How do you guys coach businesses, managers, I guess, to achieve that? I think in line with, you know, the theme of your podcast being empathy, I think that one benefit that we see from, you know, sort of these diverse environments and having an environment in which diversity is prioritized and, you know, is sort of demonstrated as important, um, you know, on each level, right? So whether it's people in, you know, the highest ranking positions to the lowest ranking positions, having that be demonstrated as an important, you know, component of your organization can foster empathy because I think part of the reason that diversity can be so effective is that it makes you sort of step outside of yourself and and see other people who are different from you as humans, you know, and you are able to see their weaknesses, their strengths, you can see what they bring to the table, you can understand or or begin to understand their unique experiences and how they're completely unlike anything that you've experienced, or maybe they're not that different from things that you've experienced. And all of those things can sort of foster an environment in which, yes, people can collaborate and be more productive in a sort of business sense, you know, in terms of production and output and, you know, the bottom line, but also can be, you know, just better all around people who are not so closed off and who are not so just stuck in the ways that are more comfortable and with people who you know, they're more comfortable with. So I think that's one of the, the main benefits that you can, can get from a diverse and inclusive uh, business environment. And so, and so like when you talk about empathy, for example, there are some trainings that, that have found to be effective. So early on trainings would be to, you know, whites and men, or didn't really focus on the needs of all the employees. It only focused on racial minorities and, and, uh, and women. Uh, which, you know, some can argue at that time, that was rightfully so, it was definitely needed and necessary. Now, a lot of diversity training takes a more, takes a, an approach that is more inclusive of, of everyone and still able to celebrate the differences uh, and mitigate prejudice of those that are not white or men. And the Harvard Business Review, like July 2017, there were some researchers that talked about some diversity training that worked, and two of them were perspective taking, which involved empathy and goal setting, where uh, they measured pro-diversity attitudes of, uh, of students who, who, were, who were future, who are going to be in the workplace in the future. So they're a proxy for, you know, employees and workers. And they found that um, by asking them to imagine themselves as racial minority, uh, someone who's gay or lesbian or someone who's um, a woman or racial minority, what would be some of the experiences that they would have uh, and write that down on a sheet of paper. They were also asked to create some goals. Like what, what is something that you would do in the workplace in order to prevent workplace discrimination or prejudice or differential treatment from happening? And so by individuals putting themselves in other people's shoes and also being kind of brought to the table, if you will, to develop policies, it was found that their pro-diversity attitudes improved over the course of, I believe as much as six or even eight months. Some other activities that, that, I've, that I've, uh, I've participated in include the identity circle. The facilitator will have people gather around in a circle and you'll ask people to step inside the circle when they hear a statement that describes their experience. And experiences could be anywhere from 
you know, I've, I've gone outside the United States. I've traveled abroad at least four or five times in my life to when I was a kid, I heard gunshots outside my window. And so those things kind of bring light to other individuals about the experiences of the employees with whom they work that they never knew about. Because, you know, people don't really think, talk about these conversations. I'm at work, you know, I'm not going to say, yeah, when I was growing up, you know, it was a drug dealer, the neighborhood drug dealer, everybody was friends with. I mean, that's not a professional environment. People might think differently about me. And I was thinking about, you know, the identity and the similarities and differences, kind of breaking down barriers by just seeing people in different lights or being able to relate to yourself, <laughs> things back to yourself. You know, the other thing that I'd love to hear your perspective on is just bias. You know, every, all of us have our biases that we, I guess, inherit or learn. And uh, how, how, what role does, I guess, uh, self-awareness of our biases play in all of this? What is bias? Where does it come from? And how do we have to recognize our own bias in order to develop inclusive mindset or to, to be able to be empathic? You know, do you have to be able to have a certain amount of self, I don't know, self-awareness of the bias? Yeah. What is, what is bias? Yeah, that's a great question. So something that uh, I have been doing this semester with my students, it's a class on cultural diversity in the media. And one of the first things that we talk about is our sort of process of socialization. And so like as soon as we're born, before we're born, you know, in a way we're being socialized because of course, you know, most people, you know, they find out, you know, what, what's the sex of the baby and they automatically assign a color you know, blue or pink, you know, they start buying specific toys, you know, a little cute suit, you know, with a bow tie for the boy baby and like, you know, a headband and pink dress for the girl baby. And so it begins even before we're born. But by the time that we're, say, of the age that we go off to preschool, and then we start interacting with people who are not, you know, just our parents or our relevant others, we have been socialized very strongly already. And so we pass on these things that we believe about the world to our children as a way to, you know, help them grow into, you know, fully formed human beings. And so what that, even though our intentions are good, if we have biases, we pass them on. And so we teach our, our children things about race, things about gender from when they're young. And so it's really hard. It takes real uh, effort to unlearn, you know, some of the things. And so even if it's not a bias, right, even if you're not like, well, I think women are inherently weaker, you still might act upon those sort of things uh, that show you've been socialized in a way to treat women as though they're weaker or to believe those things, even if you wouldn't consciously say something like that. I mean, it takes real effort and real learning to step away from it and to be able to recognize it in yourself. And so there are some, some sort of, I guess, exercises that you can do to try to recognize your own biases. And again, even if it's not necessarily a bias, it can still be a way that you have been socialized to behave in a certain way that you maybe wouldn't if not for specific socialization. So one thing I do with my students is to have them um, answer 20, uh, like a 20 statements test. It's basically, you just have like a blank piece of paper and you answer, you complete the sentence. It begins with I am, and then you can just answer whatever. So a lot of times you will see male students say things like, I am powerful. I am smart. I'm tall. And you'll see 
the female students say things like, I am a mother, I am a sister. So, and what that, what that shows is that, you know, the women in the room, a lot of times women are sort of socialized to think of themselves in relation to other people. So your identity might be based on the fact that you're a mother or you, what might come to your mind first is your siblings or your child, as opposed to statements about, you know, you as a person, how you feel about yourself. I'm powerful. I'm strong. Um, and so that's just a sort of way to sort of open people's eyes and see, you know, we're both in the same classroom. We're both in the same, uh, at the same college. But when I think about myself, I think these things, I automatically go this way versus, you know, someone else automatically going in the other the other direction. And so those are some ways you can sort of recognize the ways in which you have been socialized and, and what that means, you know, for you as you operate in the world. Well, I imagine in an organization where you're trying to create a more inclusive environment overall, there's, I mean, I'd expect you guys run up against a lot of resistance in because of, I guess to change your identity, you have to be willing to take a risk to see yourself and your maybe long held beliefs in a new light, like let go of that and reinvent who you are or how you think that's got to be a hard thing for some people to do, do you know, and I'm, what does it take in an organization to create that kind of safety? Well, I think organizations still have to do a better job of uh, setting policy, um, allowing decision makers who uh, have a seat at the table, who are those who impact the, the um, the culture of diversity within the workplace. There's still many organizations that don't, for example, have chief diversity officers. It's not enough to have conversation and policy enforcement about diversity within the HR office. It needs to be someone at some sort of executive C-suite level because that'll send a signal to the organization about its, its values. Also, when we look at, going back to what you said, self-awareness, what Joy touched on, I mean, it's very key. And one of the things is to giving surveys like Joy gives, and also Harvard, Harvard, Harvard University has an implicit attitudes test that you can go online and find too, to let people know about themselves, you know, what biases, hidden biases that they have. But unfortunately, there's still going to be some individuals that even when they recognize their bias, it's difficult for them to change based on different personality traits that they have personality is, 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 is really rather stable and hard to uh, change for different people. So, you know, it's a combination of, you know, training, building empathy through some of the activities and, and surveys, self-report surveys so people can understand about themselves, but then also organizations have to take a more active role in, uh, in leadership and enforcing policies at work. We've seen in the current news Many instances where there are organizations that have these policies in place, but they don't do anything about it, or they. Yeah, that's an interesting point because we talk about we can talk about policy and 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 that's kind of like yeah that could be one of the first steps. But even once policies are in place, whether at at an organizational level or even at government, you know we want to go beyond that, right? We want people. We don't want to just coerce people into changing behavior. It's how do you inspire them? How can your efforts inspire people to to want uh, to embrace that, to em- embrace the differences. Or like say, we have a policy, so check that box. We're done. <laughs> like yeah. We're not going to we're not well, going to follow yeah, this yeah. and uh, evaluate our efforts. Yeah, it's like you have a policy of keeping your kitchen clean and OK, that's the rule. But how do you make people want to like, yeah, let's make sure this 
the kitchen is always clean and organized <laughs> and all that stuff, right? Yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. I, I, I mean, I think it's, it's uh, you have to triangulate. You have to have all the different, all the different methods at once and just, you know, hope that things will improve. Also, one thing I didn't mention too is, is more representation of, uh, of women and minorities in leadership positions too. Because, you know, these things send, send signals. And when signals of the culture change, then uh, people will eventually change. And, and that's evident, you know, we just, I think we just have to be patient because it's evident when we look at just, you know, our history here in the United States. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to ha- have this teaching job right? So, you know, some um, decades back. So it, it takes time. It's not going to happen overnight. It's, and I think that's something that many people need to realize. And that's also like one of the myths that Joy and I talk about. Managers think it's going to happen overnight. So sometimes if it doesn't work according to their plan, they, they abandon it or they just give up on trying to really manage diversity properly, or they might just sweep it under the rug because they think it's, it's not a big deal and it won't matter anyway. So or they fail, uh, or, or they stop at the first sign of failure, or the first <clears throat> sign of resistance. We'll just like, all right, let's just continue with our old ways and and not continue, not put in this effort. Right, exactly. You know, so you know, training. You know, emotional intelligence is a key word, a big buzzword right now. That's very important. And I don't think enough employees get trained on these different types of skill sets that'll enable them to be more tolerant, more uh, empathic. Uh, like you said, Holly, checking the box is, is not enough. It has to be some follow-up. It has to be some experiential learning so that they can really understand the true value of the training, why it's necessary, how it impacts them, where who they are, and why it's important for them to change. But at the same time, I also think there has to be enforcement. I, you know, I believe in enforcing policy as well, because that also sends signals to others that uh, this is not going to, this type of behavior at work won't be tolerated and it's not in alignment with the values of our organization. Yeah, it's so interesting. So many people think that empathy, you know, is, and, and as you say, emotional intelligence, that it's an inherent part of what we understand as humans. But <laughs> the more Nelson and I are talking to folks and, and kind of researching this area, it's so apparent that we have to build these skills and uh, yeah. it's, it's got to be a concerted effort. <laughs> and you know, the scary part, Holly, is that when we look at empathy as it's, it's, it's uh, multifaceted. It's like so, it's so many parts to it. So one can be have the cognitive response for empathy where they understand empathy, they see it, but that emotional response is not there. And that's scary, too, because you'll have individuals who are in positions, influential positions, that might try and manipulate others based on that. And so uh, just when we talk about empathy itself, a training on that is needed because people might think that they have empathy when they really don't, or they just are missing a piece of it. So they can, you or, know. Or misusing it. Yeah. Or, mis- yeah. Or, or misusing it. Right. Right. Yeah, I think when you look at profiles of, of criminals, uh, the, the most empathic ones are psychopaths. Right. right. But it just shows you that <laughs> you can use anything. You can use any uh, skill set or, or even technology to just as much as to an advantage, but also to cause harm. Uh, for good and, and for bad. So, so you know, our message to to our folks: use empathy <laughs> wisely, responsibly. Yeah. Use it wisely. <laughs> use it responsibly. Yeah. The news research it talks about uh, narcissist leaders and um, how some of the answers parallel uh, the same answers as convicted criminals uh, on the uh, psychopath 
scale. So anyway. You know, it's interesting when I think about business. I mean, I think about, you know, we talk about teaching empathy in schools, integrating, you know, emotional intelligence more in our instruction, which I think is really important, but it is kind of cool to think about the integrating empathy and emotional intelligence through, you know, helping people understand, I guess, the impact of diversity inclusion on business outcomes, like giving people a very specific shared goal uh, and positive outcome and learning under that umbrella. So they're kind of, it seems like maybe you're, it's more like applied learning (laughs) and you're, if you measure it right and you set up the right infrastructure, you can actually, people can see the change that they're making directly on the work that they're trying to achieve. So it's kind of like keeping your eyes on that focused area, I guess maybe allows for more risk-taking. It could, like you were saying, you have to have the right policies and the right leadership enforcing it, but it seems like a really amazing opportunity to make kind of personal growth and change, community growth and change, and then organizational, you know, benefits. It's just like a, I can't believe people wouldn't want to do it. <laughs> like, it seems like a no-brainer. <laughs> maybe yeah. if it doesn't affect their bottom line as much as they think, then that's probably a motivator to not do it. That's right. You know, until, until they get sued, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, but that's, that's human nature, right? I mean, we do that often, you know, we wait till last minute to turn in a paper. We, <laughs> we know we should work on it on time. You know, we, um, uh, some, some people pay their bills late. I mean, you know, we, we, we know, we know what's good for us, but Sometimes what's what's immediately right in front of us, like the bottom line or, or the amount of money revenue is being generated, we, we lose we lose sight of uh, the big picture. And we because it we, takes time course. and money, right? <laughs> and effort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and, and human beings, you know, are to a certain degree, we think about self-preservation. You know, that you know, if you walk into a group, this you know, this research shows that as as, as a black man, um, if I see a group of um, white men in a, in a waiting room and a group of um, black women in a waiting room, I'm going to make the choice who I feel most comfortable sitting next to. And it depends on what part of my identity is more salient to me. And these are just these subconscious things that occur that we're not even aware of. So, you know, going back to self-awareness, uh, knowing, you know, we have to think about what we think about, you know, I know that sounds confusing, but, uh, but that's, and that's what makes, you know, this work in the diversity landscape uh, so difficult and challenging. And so important. <laughs> yeah, very important. Absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for sharing all these insights. And um, it's just a, it's a critical part of, of what we all need to understand. So I'm so happy we get to share this on Empathy Podcast. Well, thank you for having us. This has been wonderful. I've listened to your podcast before too. So I know they're a lot of fun. So I hope, hope I was fun enough. And I'm thinking we should put a link to some of the resources that you mentioned during the discussion up on the, our website so people can, you know, find the, maybe if people are interested in exploring some of the bias kind of self-awareness tool that you had mentioned or any kind of, um, you know, readings that are accessible to folks, like what we might be able to provide so people can explore this topic some more. Yeah, it's a great idea. I will, you know, I will definitely send those to you. Cool. That implicit attitude test is, mm-hmm. is, is a very good one. It's very surprising. Yeah, I want to do it. (laughs) I'm going to do it. (laughs) One thing that I I would like to mention, because I think this would be a good resource as well for your your listeners, maybe just to even just think about one 
business model that a lot of people don't talk about is the sort of business model that focuses on employee ownership. And so it's like a direct contrast to our sort of capitalistic model that most of our businesses run on or, you know, or set up that way. And so that is, in my opinion, inherently a more empathetic way of doing business Mm -hmm. when people, everybody from, you know, the top to the bottom have not only um, a stake in the company based on, you know, okay, I want the company to be successful because I want a paycheck, but literally, you know, maybe they have stock in the company or they're able, they're, uh, they have a vote. So every employee from the top to the bottom gets really a say in how the business is run that makes for more empathetic experiences between employees and and overall the happiness of the employees in organizations like that are happier like they're happier they have better um, outcomes they have more money in savings they have more money saved up for retirement from the top to the bottom and there's also a less of a discrepancy between pay of the lowest paid employees and the highest paid employees and so that in my opinion is an actual empathetic business structure that has seen success, but obviously it is in competition with capitalism. So that's a fascinating approach though. Definitely want to look into that. It seems like a a good motivating force for people to really dig into some of these key issues and take part. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a great research idea. Join offline. We're going to follow (laughs) up on that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, We'll have to circle back and see how that goes. (laughs) Cool. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you you guys for showing up. It was a pleasure to have you guys. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Empathy Podcast. Be sure to visit our website at www.empathypodcast.com. And if you have any questions, thoughts, or suggestions, feel free to send us an email at hello at empathypodcast.com. Also, find us on Facebook by searching Empathy Podcast. And be sure to tune in for the next episode.